Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session. Instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. And as a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, Mary, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's education workshop. This is our eighth annual Survivorship Series, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. And today's program is our Survivorship and Workplace Transitions Workshop. And uh, this is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care, the National Cancer Institute, Live Strong, Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And it really is because of that collaboration that we have been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have on the call today over 2,596 participants. So there are a lot of you on the call today. And although you may not be able to see each other, you're all there. And it's really a very large call. And I want to also acknowledge that you're from all over the United States. You come from large cities and small cities. You come from suburban areas as well as rural and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Africa, Australia, Brazil, Bermuda, Canada, the Dominican Republic, Egypt, India, Ireland, Israel, Italy, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, the Virgin Islands, Venezuela, and the United Kingdom. So you really come from all over the world and with a great interest in the, the issue of the workplace transition issues. Now, I would like at this point to introduce my co-moderator for today's program, Dr. Catherine Alfano. Dr. Alfano is Program Director and Behavioral Scientist, Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Scientist, National Cancer Institute, the National Institutes of Health. And Dr. Alfano, who has really been very instrumental in planning and supporting this program, is going to say some words of welcome to you. She's my esteemed colleague, and I'm delighted to introduce her to you our invited speakers, and to all of the listeners who have joined us for today's workshop. I'm, I'm truly honored to be able to co-host this eighth annual Cancer Survivorship Teleconference Series that focuses on the issues faced by survivors and their loved ones after treatment ends. On behalf of the National Cancer Institute, represented by my office, the Office of Cancer Survivorship, and by the Office of Communications and Education, we are pleased to serve once again as an organizational partner and co-funder of this program. The National Cancer Institute established the Office of Cancer Survivorship in 1996 in direct response to the articulate and compelling demand by cancer, survivorship, cancer survivors and the advocacy community to improve the length and quality of survival for all of those living with a history of cancer, which is currently estimated to be over 12 million people in the United States alone. One of the ways the office achieves its mission is by participating in the development of educational materials and outreach activities, such as this teleconference series, that are designed to equip cancer survivors and their caregivers with the information that they need to achieve optimal health and well-being after cancer. The number of participants in this survivorship series has continued to grow across the years. In the past, we've had participants from over two dozen countries on our calls, making our capacity to reach those in search of information truly global. Along with our program partners, we're deeply gratified by this response. At the same time, we recognize that the popularity of this series is a testament to the fact that for many cancer survivors and caregivers, even though cancer treatment is over, 
the cancer experience is not. The topics that we choose for this series reflect themes that many survivors, caregivers, and healthcare providers have told us present challenges for them as survivors make the transition from treatment to recovery. Today's topic, survivorship and workplace transitions, is extremely important because we know that cancer and treatment may have lasting negative effects on employment. While as many as 40% of U.S. survivors may stop working during cancer treatment, most survivors will eventually return to work. Alternatively, some survivors choose to stay employed or have to stay employed during and after cancer treatment. Studies of cancer survivors at work show that upwards of 31% may experience debilitating functional limitations and psychosocial difficulties such as fatigue, depression, and stress that can affect their ability to work. Some survivors are able to work with their employers and to make accommodations to their jobs, such as a more flexible schedule. However, not all survivors or employers may be able to alter jobs to meet the survivor's needs. Maintaining participation in the workforce is an important goal for many survivors, since work is a major source of income, financial security, and health insurance, and because work provides social support and shapes personal roles that affect mental health and quality of life after cancer. I am very pleased to have such outstanding speakers to address this important topic today. Again, I'm delighted to be co-hosting this workshop with my colleague, Dr. Carolyn Messner, and I'll now turn the program over to her. Thank you very much, Dr. Alfano, for such a wonderful welcome and also for really putting this program in a context in terms of the important issues and how we actually choose topics for this program, for this entire series. This is part three of our four-part series, and um, I do want to turn your attention for a moment to all the materials that you received from Cancer Care. And uh, in, in those materials, there is um, an outline that our speakers have prepared, information about our speakers. There is also information about all of the different collaborating organizations with their resource information. And there is a wonderful uh, Facing Forward uh, series, which is uh, provided by the National Cancer Institute, just a wonderful series for cancer survivors as well. Um, there is, in addition, an evaluation form. And I would ask you to take a moment and complete that evaluation form. When you think about it, who but each of you can best tell us the topics you would like us to offer for our series next year? And um, actually, we start to plan next year's series very soon. Um, part four is in July, so we actually start to plan our next series very, very soon. And so we actually need your feedback so that we are sure to pick topics that are most relevant to your needs. And indeed, this topic was one that many of you last year requested that we do um, for, a, for this program. Now, this program, this entire series, is made possible by support from the National Cancer Institute and Live Strong. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Without that support, these series would not be possible. And the support from the National Cancer Institute and Live Strong has been forthcoming now for all these many years. So we're very grateful for that support. Now, we have a wonderful program today with really great speakers. And, our, and I want to introduce our first speaker, um, is Peter Daly, Pete Daly, and Pete is going to provide the survivor perspective. Now, he is Patient Advocate Center for Patient Partnerships, the University of Wisconsin. And, and I'm going to now open the line for Pete. Pete actually is right now in rural Indiana. He's participating in a bike tour, and um, we're really delighted to have him with us to really give us the perspective of the survivor's perspective. So I now turn the program over to Pete. Thank you, Carolyn. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Pete Daly, and I've, uh, 
I'm a melanoma guy, and I had a diagnosis of stage 3 melanoma in 2002. In 2004, it spread to my bones, my brain, and various places in between. So I'd like to share some perspectives that I've gained and some lessons I've learned in my uh, trials and tribulations in the workplace. So I have five steps for you today. Uh, the first step is to take a healthy approach. I think we all have to take a healthy approach to our health care, but certainly to the employment scene as well. And that means uh, healthy, uh, we're going to see some setbacks, uh, we're going to need some humor, uh, and we're going to have to feel that we're not alone in it. So that's uh, one, take a healthy approach. Uh, two, I would say, is really know yourself, know what you need and what you want. Uh, going into an employment uh, negotiation session, uh, you really have to know where you're coming from and uh, what you'd like to get out of it. And that may take some soul-searching. It may take some uh, looking at the options, but knowing oneself going into uh, discussions with an employer can uh, mean a whole lot. The third step, I would say, is to be realistic. And as an advocate, I deal with uh, survivors that may be a little unrealistic sometimes facing the employment scene. And uh, that goes two ways. One, be being realistic about your di disease, uh, where you're at with your uh, healing, and uh, how you think things may unfold. Uh, and be realistic about your employer. Uh, how long you've worked there, what their financial strength may be at the current time, what their uh, morale is like, uh, things like that that would tune you into uh, their ability to be flexible and their ability to work with you. So uh, be realistic about uh, your own situation and what your employer company may be able to offer. Uh, the fourth step, I would say, is to be knowledgeable. And this may be a little contrary to some of the earlier suggestions, but really to uh, know your company, uh, know your company uh, bylaws uh, and employee guidelines, uh, and know the laws that are involved. Again, these won't be strict parameters, but uh, being fully knowledgeable about what, uh, what the parameters are uh, can be really helpful and uh, to sound knowledgeable right from the beginning. Uh, if you take an upbeat uh, approach and a knowledgeable approach, uh, I think things will go much further. And the fifth step I would share with you is to be creative. Uh, oftentimes we think of employment situations as fixed sort of positions with uh, fixed job descriptions, with fixed work rules, uh, in my experience, uh, being creative about what can work out on both ends matters a whole lot, uh, both from an employee and an employer's uh, sense. Uh, being creative about what can work out at the, at the initial negotiations, but uh, probably more importantly, as things evolve. Uh, employment's an ongoing creative uh, enterprise and uh, both the employee and the employer need to work that out as it unfolds. So just uh, kind of in summary here, I would say uh, I've learned from my own experience and 
from working with other cancer survivors as their advocate is uh, take the healthy approach, uh, know oneself going into it, be realistic about your disease and your employer's situation, be knowledgeable about your company and the laws involved, and fifth, uh, be creative. Uh, think about uh, all the options you may have in front of you and uh, invent uh, with your employer the employment situation that works well. I want to thank you very much, Pete. That was really outstanding and, and really such wonderful tips for everybody. I mean, really, you really have um, set the groundwork for the rest of our uh, teleconference today, but you've really done a great job, and I, I can't thank you enough. I know that there will be um, questions and comments for you later on. You really just really did a great job. Thank you so much. Our next uh, speaker is um, is Meg Gaines, Martha Gaines, actually, um, and she is an attorney. She's Director, Center for Patient Partnerships, Clinical Professor of Law, University of Wisconsin. And she is going to address legal issues in the workplace for cancer survivors, and she's going to uh, uh, touch upon the ADA, FMLA, issues of disclosure, communication guidelines, and workplace accommodations, flex time. I'm now going to turn the program over to, to, uh, to Meg, actually. Hi. Thanks, Carolyn, and uh, thanks, everybody, for for being here. Thanks to Pete for showing up in Indiana. <clears throat> um, so I have the unenviable task of talking about the law, <laughs> which is never the most exciting thing to talk about, but I'm going to try and at least make it uh, practical, interesting, and approachable. It's interesting to me we have international folks on the call because I think uh, obviously the particular laws I'm going to be talking about are, are uh, United States uh, federal and state laws, but I think the broader principles I'm talking about um, will apply across a, a broader spectrum for you, hopefully anyway. Um, so I want to say a couple things in the beginning about uh, about legal issues in the workplace for cancer survivors and just le legal issues generally. Um, first thing is just about laws. Um, laws are actually kind of frozen in time. And so laws are actually applicable sort of to specific facts at a specific time. They're not fluid over time. Laws don't move and change with your situation or your, uh, with our conditions. So, um, so it's important, I think, to, um, to recognize that as our conditions change, so might how we view, see, and use uh, the laws that are uh, available uh, to us. Um, so the second point is that, you know, laws are the rules of the game. Um, it's important to be familiar with the rules of the game in order to sort of play the game. I don't mean to make it sound like work is a game or life is a game, but I'm just sort of using the metaphor. Um, so it's important to be familiar with the rules, but not let the rules define your goals or your hopes or your dreams or your visions or even your actions necessarily. Um, <clears throat> Pete says it's important to know what you want and that that can change over time and also that your your actual kind of condition um, or situation can change over time. So remember that, that um, how the law applies will also change as your uh, factual situation changes. Um, a third point is I think uh, one of the kind of critical underpinnings of, of the law is what you do and don't choose to, um, or how you do and don't choose to disclose uh, what's going on for you. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about at the interview stage and on the job stage. But just as a general point, 
I think at some point you have to make a determination about whether you're going to talk openly, assuming you are currently employed and currently a survivor, um, whether you're going to talk openly with your employer about um, what might happen to you. For instance, to say, well, I've been diagnosed with this and I'm going to have this treatment or I have had this treatment, but I have to have this follow-up, this kind of thing. And whether you want to actually have a specific conversation, if it goes this way, then I'll probably need this kind of time off. If it goes this way, I'll need that kind of time off. Um, keeping those lines of communication open, um, envisioning and talking through changed circumstances, and having empathy for your employer's situation as well, that's one tack um, and is the smart tack in some situations. Another tech, I think, is to kind of keep things vague and maybe not even disclose your condition if it's not necessary to disclose it in terms of your relationship to your job, your performance as an employee, and your relationship to your employer. And, again, this is sort of wrapped up in um, partly in what, what is the, what is the, what's the parameters of the, the need, to, you know, of the illness itself and what it will require from you as, a, as, a, as an employee on the job kind of thing what your relationship with your employer is, how your employer interacts with like-situated uh, people and that kind of thing. So I think that decision about to disclose a lot and talk it all the way through or to disclose not much and kind of leave it vague um, is, is a really important uh, kind of one to, to think through for yourself. And it, like everything else, it may change over time. You may decide to leave it vague at first and make it more detailed later. Um, the most important, I think, guiding principle is sort of your agenda as a survivor and what it is you want out of employment and out of uh, um, your employment situation and need out of it. Um, um, and a last point, as a general point, many employers and human resources uh, uh, departments of those employers don't know very much at all about the law. They don't know much about the various ADA, uh, FMLA, those kinds of things. And they often either give no information or bad information. Um, and so I think it's important, as, as uh, Pete said earlier, really important to know um, the law as it pertains to you, and you don't have to read chapter and verse and go to the original law. There are lots of resources out there that can kind of give you the basic ideas of these laws, as I'm going to do. Um, but it is important to... Um, get a have an independent source of information about these because uh, I think employers are often just not that uh, skilled at this. Um, also remember that the human resources people at your job do not represent you. They represent your employer. And so um, uh, the information they give and the uh, advice that you may or may not seek from them should be uh, considered in that light. So those are sort of my preamble points. Let me... Um, now kind of go real briefly through the, the disclosure things. Again, I, I, I talked a little bit about disclosure on the job. I think you uh, have to think mostly about whether um, your illness or diagnosis is relevant to your ability to do your job and is relevant to your employer. Are you going to need a lot of time off? Are you going to need uh, accommodations for you to be able to do your uh, job effectively? And uh, as you need more and more to accommodate your illness, um, I think it's more, it becomes more and more um, um, apparent that you need to disclose what's going on. 
Um, I'm not going to address disclosure uh, prior to the job at interview, so for survivors who are applying for jobs in very much detail, but to say that you are not required to disclose um, that you have a prior illness, that you have a history of cancer or a history of, of prior illness, um, and that if you are asked that question as a general rule, um, unless you have some visible disability and your employer asks you about this visible disability and its relationship to the the job requirements. Um, if you're asked such a question um, without any, uh, because of some information the employer got elsewhere, um, at don't don't uh, um, lie about it. But I would uh, suggest you not uh, answer it with any substance. I would say I'm in great health and I'm doing just fine, and and uh, move on to the next uh, question. So let me go briefly into the the laws. There are um, a couple of federal laws, the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA, as many people have heard of. There's also a slightly lesser known Federal Rehabilitation Act, um, and both of them are relevant in, to different uh, groups of people. But generally speaking, um, uh, the uh, Americans with Disability Acts um, prohibits discrimination um, uh, on perhaps basically you're being treated differently from other workers in your job-related activities, uh, either because you have a cancer history or because you have an illness. Um, and there are, again, sort of requirements. You have to be otherwise qualified for the job. You, your employer has to have, in fact, treated you differently um, and uh, because of your cancer treatment or history. And at some time, your cancer substantially limited your ability to do your everyday activities or your employer thought that your cancer uh, limited it. Um, the ADA applies to any employer that has at least uh, 15 employees. Um, and there are, in most states, uh, concomitant um, state laws that frequently, I guess, uh, make the ADA extend even deeper into um, a discrimination. but. Um, uh, generally, anyway, there are also state laws that you can uh, make use of. Um, <clears throat> so under the ADA, um, an employer is required, if you have a disability, to make uh, reasonable accommodations um, for that disability. Now, there is probably more law than we'd have time to spend five hours on a teleconference about what is a reasonable accommodation. But the kinds of accommodations that we sometimes or often find cancer survivors looking for are things like flexible hours so they can go to treatment or follow-up or breaks, you know, sort of more rest breaks, that kind of thing. And again, if this isn't an, what's called an unreasonable hardship, if this doesn't put the employer in a position of unreasonable hardship, then um, employers are required to make those kinds of um, reasonable accommodations. So that's the kind of basic primer on the ADA. Um, there's also something called the Family Medical Leave Act, which is uh, which uh, uh, requires um, uh, is a federal law um, that requires employers with 50 or more employees to provide you with up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave uh, for family members who need time off either to address their own health condition or the health condition of a seriously ill child or parent or spouse or healthy newborn or newly adopted child. So um, it's, it's, unprotected, uh, it's unpaid leave, but it's job-protected leave. So you must have your job uh, or a reasonable, uh, reasonably similar job um, available to you uh, when you return after uh, taking uh, this leave. 
Um, it's 12 weeks annually. Um, and in one more qualification for the FMLA is you have to have worked at least uh, 25 hours uh, per week uh, for a year. Um, I'm almost out of time, so um, I'm just going to say a couple things about enforcing your legal rights. Um, one, again, use your employer's policies and procedures. Read them, know them, um, ask for help understanding them. Um, if you need some kind of accommodation, such as flexible hours, um, suggest several different alternatives to your employer. Um, try to work with them. Um, <clears throat> And then if you and seek support from your coworkers, there's nothing like a good relationship with your coworkers to make it easier on your employer, and then the problem or the issue kind of goes away or can. Um, again, if you get to a point where you're thinking about suing because your rights have clearly been um, violated, um, you should always keep carefully written records of all job actions, good and bad, you know, the times you've been cited and the times for good uh, performance and bad. Um, and think about, before you sue, think about what are your goals. Um, do you want your job back? Do you want a change in working conditions, some bene certain benefit or an apology or something like that? Because, you know, a lawsuit, if you're trying to get your job back, might get you your job back but uh, leave you with a pretty hostile re working relationship, which may or may not accom accomplish your overall goals. Um, and consider settling your complaint or getting someone to help mediate it, your union representative or someone like that. Um, always, always, always keep close watch on filing deadlines. Um, they vary depending on who you are and what, where you work. Um, and, and um, you know, these are important uh, considerations so you don't lose your right to sue um, or your right to at least uh, uh, have an effective conversation with your employer about, uh, about a lawsuit. So. Uh, again, those are that's a real basic overview in, um, in the legal uh, aspects of uh, employment and survivorship. But um, uh, I think I'll leave it there for for time reasons. Well, I want to thank you very much. That was really very informative and very comprehensive. You really did a very comprehensive review of the laws and protections and what people need to know. And so I want to thank you very much, Martha, for that excellent, really excellent presentation. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Kathy Bradley, and she is Professor and Chair, Department of Healthcare Policy and Research, School of Medicine, Co-Leader, Cancer Prevention and Control, Massey Cancer Center. And she's going to talk about work transitions from her research on employment during treatment and cancer survivors and post-treatment employment. Kathy? Good afternoon. I'm a health economist, and I study the intersection between health and work, and specifically look at return to work issues, absenteeism, and continuation of work following um, a health event. I have conducted interviews with thousands of cancer survivors um, in terms of what barriers and challenges they have faced, and also the positive outcomes and benefits that they have gained from returning to work. It is estimated that approximately half of cancer survivors are of working age, and they have motivations to remain working, including career aspirations, health insurance continuity, which is particularly important in the United States, where our health insurance is dependent on an employer-based system, and we can either get it through our own employer or if um, we're an, a married individual to get it through a spouse's employer. Other reasons include wages, uh, distractions from health concerns, 
also a sense of normalcy um, and that work can help you maintain a, a positive self-esteem. And some survivors have reported to me uh, during our studies that continuing to work is associated with a really good quality of life during treatment and that the importance of work has emerged as one of the greatest um, issues following concerns about health and family. Among patients that are employed at the time of diagnosis, between 64 and 84 percent return to work following treatment. In fact, three out of five patients continue to work during treatment, and that includes um, individuals who are treated with uh, fairly uh, intense regimens of chemotherapy. Many, many continue to work um, during that time and are able to negotiate the kind of accommodations that they need in order to keep their jobs. In my own studies of women with breast cancer, men with prostate cancer, I have found that they return to work at about the same rate as individuals who have never had cancer. It takes approximately 12 to 18 months for a normal work routine to be reestablished, and that's across many, many um, survivors. Some, of course, it takes less time, and others it might take more. But in general, they are all able to return to work. And in some cases, I have, seen, I have had extensive reports of individuals working more, more hours per week than their non-cancer counterparts. And the reasons for this are, are multiple. One may go back to this hypothesis about health insurance and the need to maintain health insurance. Generally, health insurance is associated with full-time employment. So an individual who may have been employed part-time may go up to full-time employment following cancer and its treatment in order to secure um, health insurance. Others have reported a renewed vigor, a renewed interest, and in wanting to find meaning and purpose in life and therefore increase their hours of work in response to having had been a diagnosis and treatment. We have found evidence that continuing to work, um, in, order to do, in order to continue to work, that some survivors have found it necessary to change jobs. When they were originally diagnosed and after having gone through treatment, they find certain aspects of their position to be difficult to continue. Those individuals tend to be employed in high-stress jobs where just managing the stress of that particular job becomes untenable, or they are employed in physically demanding jobs where it's just physically difficult for them to be able to carry out um, the duties that they had before. The most common example that I've seen in my studies actually has to do with women with breast cancer who've had surgery and they have ongoing lymphedema and difficulty lifting above their heads. Generally, they're able to find a position or within the same, same company and having the same employer where their job can be modified. But it's key that the survivor understand the points that were made in the prior presentation about accommodation, what is reasonable, and what the employer can reasonably provide uh, for them. But knowing what their needs are and what would work best for them is the best way to get what it is you, you, you need to accommodate your position and let you continue working. Another important part of this equation is the interaction with the physician. 
and to be clear with the physician what your needs are for rehabilitation, if there are any, and what you perceive the limitations to be, and if there is a way in which you can be treated that would minimize the long-term effects of, of these um, long, the, the sequela of having been diagnosed and treated for cancer. The things that are negatively associated with returning to work, or just the opposite of those that, that are, are the positive, approximately one-fifth of cancer survivors report long-term physical and psychological symptoms that do interfere with their work. They're most um, commonly associated with these physically intensive and stressful jobs. Another area that has been mentioned um, to me in studies has been having an unaccommodating employer as being a very difficult um, component of being able to successfully return to work. However, many survivors find that their coworkers can be a great source of su support and the work itself to be a distraction from day-to-day -day worries from cancer. An encouraging work environment may have a positive influence on the extent to which survivors report treatment-induced impairments. Survivors with a strong commitment to work or good work environment report fewer obstacles than survivors with, a supportive, um, with an unsupportive work environment. Social support from an immediate supervisor and coworkers is also associated with a willingness to work and an ongoing commitment to work. Employers need support and resources to help them facilitate employment and job retention of individuals diagnosed with cancer. Many cases, as mentioned in the prior presentation, employers don't know what the laws state and what they're required to do. And so often the survivor has to be the advocate for themselves and also to educate the employer. In many cases, employers are unsure how to help cancer survivors and are unsure the laws that protect these survivors. And one cannot assume that uh, employers or employees are aware of or adhere to federal regulations. So in closing, the message is overall very, very positive. With the passage of certain laws, survivors have reported over time fewer and fewer cases of discrimination and have reported far more positive and supportive work environment in returning to work following treatment. Thank you very much, uh, Kathy. That was an outstanding presentation and lots of information for everybody. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, just really very informative. So thank you. And our last speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman, Director of Supportive Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, Beth Israel Medical Center, St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital. And he is going to really conclude by talking about finding your new normal, balancing work and home. Dr. Fleischman? Balancing between work and home is always difficult, but I think after cancer over the years, we've seen our patients go through a variety of different circumstances. Um, as said before, some people find work a relief and sometimes even an escape from their cancer and it harks back to the days when they felt like themselves. Other people find it a, a burden. Um, and sometimes um, many of us have spent a little too much time on work or a little less time on work than we needed to. But I think over the course of a lifetime, with and even without cancer, that probably should um, all be equivalent. Uh, but it can't be equivalent every day or every week or even every month. 
So I think that's, that's kind of something important when you're thinking about balance. It's not that day or that week, but over the course of a long period of time, and it will ebb and flow. Um, I think uh, many patients tell us that having had cancer gives a perspective on work that they haven't had in the past, and that could be how important uh, an work is and a mission is in life or how uh, maybe I've spent a little too much time on my work situation and not enough time with my family and my friends and on myself. So I think it varies from person to person depending on the circumstances. Um, when um, people do get back to work, the reentry is sometimes very difficult with all the legal uh, things aside that we just heard about. Getting back um, to work is a difficult uh, graduation for many, many people, and many, many patients describe to us how uh, they weren't sure who knew, who didn't know, uh, that sometimes people will look at them like they're about to get sick again and just don't do that here, don't do that on my shift. But for most of the time, after some very beginning uncomfortable um, interchanges or just some growing pains, everything works out pretty well for many people. Now, we've just heard about the legal, compli the, the legal importance of having an, a good workplace and reasonable accommodation. That certainly isn't universal. But for many people, they tell us um, how they've been embraced by their colleagues and by their coworkers and how getting back to work can be sort of a, a graduation at the end of their cancer, and that's something to keep important in mind. So there's not sort of a one-fits-all situation here, but for some people it is a joy and some people it is a burden, and I think we just have to put that in the whole context of cancer survivorship and not pay too much attention to it or too little attention to it. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Fleischman, and that's very helpful with guidelines to everybody. And now we do have time for questions. We actually have lots of time for questions. I'm going to um, ask Mary to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And, Mary, if you could bring all of our speakers on board so they're all here to answer everybody's question. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Again, if you do have a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. One moment, please. Our first question comes from Peggy Kay. Uh, yes. Um, I've been dealing with cancer for three and a half years, four surgeries, and I can't tell you how many chemos. But I want to return to my job, and I drive a little mini school bus. Now, right now I can do this job. I don't know what's going to happen later. I have a daughter in college, so mom has to work. So how do I handle this? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, I'm going to ask Meg Gaines to just comment first, and maybe then Dr. Fleischman. Um, yeah, I think if you feel, I found, heard just a little bit of reticence in your voice about whether you feel ready to work, but I guess what I'd say is if you feel ready to work, go ahead and work, and make, obviously you're in one of those jobs that uh, has a huge public safety aspect to it, so it is really important, I think, in public safety kind of jobs to have um, strong communication and open communication with your employer about what you do and don't feel up to and what you can and can't do safely. Um, and if, you, if, if you're going to have that conversation, which I think is important, I think it would be also really important to um, presage with your employer that you want to check in periodically um, 
and uh, see how you feel and update so that you stay in good contact with and obviously um, keep yourself and, and your children safe. And Dr. Fleischman, do you want to comment? Sure. Um, we have been through this uh, with many patients before. I had a patient a number of years ago who was also a driver of a public vehicle. I don't remember what type of a bus, a shuttle bus or something along those lines, not a, not a big municipal bus. And um, one of the things that uh, his employer asked him to do was go back to a driving school and um, get behind the wheel of a van that was um, equipped to do lessons and actually take a refresher lesson. And the instructor was charged with making sure that the guy could actually perform well and his reaction time was good and his judgment was okay despite all the cancer treatment and it worked out well and it was a rather inexpensive way to really um, help give another, another fact to make the decision and I've recommended that to patients over the years and I've never heard it backfire. Excellent. Okay. Our next question. Our next question comes from Jean A. Hi. Excuse me, I'm, I was diagnosed, <coughs> excuse me, almost five years ago with uh, stage four colon cancer. And I worked through my first chemo, but I've taken medical leaves for my second two. And I'm wondering uh, what you've seen with people in terms of psychosocial changes, because I've been getting feedback from my manager that I am more abrupt and I offend my coworkers and I'm not a good team player anymore. And is that something you're sensing or it's something that you're hearing other people say? I'm hearing other people say, I catch myself every once in a while, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, saying something that is a little abrupt or I've never been known for tact and it seems like I have even less now. Well, that's an excellent question, and it's really um, it's a question I, I suspect that many people on the call may have concerns about. I, I'm going to ask Dr. Fleischman if you could address that question. It's really uh, so much an issue that's, that I think we hear so much about. Oh, I, I think that's one of the things uh, when our patients tell us that cancer is a life-changing experience. Um, it, in, in a way that we don't always expect when we think about surgery, chemo, and radiation that our uh, tolerance for things may be different. It may be just the process of getting back to work. It may be a permanent kind of I've been through the mill and my, my, my internal tolerance has, has changed. Um, people tell us this type of thing all the time and it's, I mean, I certainly have seen people who wanted to get back to um, being as much of themselves as they could before without denying the fact that they've been through a life-altering experience, bring that experience to counseling and, and try to get some sense of it. And, you know, I should say that at Cancer Care, and we offer, we have 60 master's level trained oncology social workers, and we do offer um, a huge amount of supportive services to people. And that does include talking to people who have concerns about um, to finding their new normal and, and really balancing all the differences that they may be noting about themselves, that people may be noting about them, and, and really figuring out ways to handle that, both with individual support. We also have 
uh, telephone and online support groups, and many other organizations offer that support as well. They're free, and these are things that um, I think for everyone on the call, sometimes it is really helpful to really um, engage in a conversation with somebody, a confidential conversation about your concerns, and um, many people find that that can be very helpful to them as you navigate and find your way. That's just so very important. So I, I hope that's helpful to you, and thank you for asking that excellent question. Our next question. Our next question comes from Susan S. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. I receive monthly SSD checks, Social Security Disability checks. If I get a part-time job, how will that affect my monthly check? Well, that's a great question, Susie. Thank you. Um, uh, Meg, uh, uh, could you address that question? Yes, in a very general way. Um, it, it, generally speaking, in SSD situations, and every situation's a teeny bit different, so I can't really opine on your exact situations, but generally speaking, in Social Security disability, depending on whether you're in full or partial and that kind of thing, um, you can earn uh, a certain amount of money, additional money, without it affecting your disability payment. But after a certain amount, it will affect your disability payment. So the best thing to do that I would recommend you do is call the Social Security Disability Office and uh, talk to uh, um, a caseworker there and ask them, you know, give them the specific information, maybe even your uh, identification number, and uh, ask them how much you can earn before uh, your disability payment will start being reduced. Excellent. And actually, you know, um, Pete, I wanted to ask you actually about all these issues of finding the new normal and, and what your experience was like, because you have addressed that in, in some ways. And I wondered if you also had some, um, some, uh, you know, from your own experience, from your perspective, uh, tips that you might want to offer um, in terms of some of the questions we that have come up recently on on this call. Yeah, Pete Daly again. Uh, I'd say uh, the Peggy K. Uh, on driving the minibus, I'd also think creative with with your employer about other possible positions or even possible transition positions like a, a bus monitor, helping out with dispatch, uh, even uh, customer relations, ways to step into the job in a way that you can test your own abilities and the employer can test them as well, okay? Uh, and just jumping to Gene A, I would say on the uh, more abruptness, I'd, I'd ask yourself, how does that work for you? If that's part of your own healthiness of being uh, a little bit more honest with things and that seems more healthy to you and you're getting better with that approach, uh, you might want to tone it down a bit, but uh, keep with it and try to work that into your employment. Uh, but I wouldn't try to really bend the, your own health and your new normal uh, just because of a little feedback that you're getting. I'd give it some time and see how it can work out for both. Uh, and then for uh, Susan S. on the uh, uh, SSDI, uh, in my own experience, uh, there's two things to be concerned about. One is the maximum you can earn before that will affect your SSDI payment. And the second part of it is uh, their uh, back-to-work programs. So you can go back to work, earn more than that amount for quite a few months, still get your monthly check, and then as you 
uh, eased back into the workplace, then your uh, payment will drop off. And uh, those uh, arrangements seem to be uh, very workable for many people I work with. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. And, um, uh, Dr. Bradley, I'd like to ask you a bit about the uh, – It sound, you described some of the changes in work, um, in the way people worked in terms of their return to work, um, in terms of working more hours or their commitment to work. And could you say a little bit more about that? Because I know that's always an issue for people in terms of their returning to work. Right. Well, as mentioned earlier, it's not a, a one-size-fits-all type situation, but certainly for some – it's a renewed interest in work and, and to feel a sense of accomplishment and to feel more like they're, they haven't been negatively affected by cancer, but they're, they're able to go forward and to do more and to get more things done. Whereas others need a job change. They find that the experience has, uh, of cancer diagnosis and treatment has changed them in some very important and meaningful ways whether it be in a psychosocial um, way or whether it be in a physical way, and that they need to do a different kind of job. But they still have important contributions to make um, from, from their own interests and also their financial well-being. They may just simply have to be back at work but unable to do exactly what they were able to do before. And then changing jobs and approaching that job with the same interests and and vigor as they would have before having been diagnosed and treated. Excellent. Thank you. And Mary, our next question? Our next question comes from Deborah D. Okay. Uh, here's my question, and thank you so much for taking my call, is um, how do people go about determining, like I know that I suffered cognitively from my chemotherapy and my stem cell transplant, and trying to find out, you know, what's too hard and identifying that so I don't find myself in a position of taking on jobs that are too mentally too difficult for me, but yet still fulfilling. Is there any, like, tips for how to measure what I can do versus what a job requires mentally? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to ask Dr. Fleischman to address that question just because I know it's an area of expertise of his. Dr. Fleischman? Oh, the chemo brain guy. Um, the, that's a really hard question. Uh, we've had uh, people who have gone to career counselors who will actually work with them and get some test, formal testing done to see uh, where they, where their, uh, either their ability to retain new information or learn new information um, or visual spatial things has changed um, since the treatment. Many of us don't have sort of baseline or pre-treatment evaluations. It's just not what we do. Uh, but sometimes a good testing can figure out where that is. Much of that is um, uh, on a private fee-for-service basis. But in many states, and I can't say it's uh, all 50 states, but many states under their um, offices of vocational rehabilitation do offer services similar to that. As, as was mentioned before, there are get-back-to-work programs, again, vary state by state um, and who's eligible, but certainly that's something to look out for. That's a very hard thing to judge on your own because um, knowing that it's there is the first step, but then quantifying it may need a more objective third person. And do any of our other speakers want to comment on those memory and thinking changes that people sometimes report or experience? 
Um, this is Kathy Bradley. I know in, in my studies that at the begin shortly after treatment, we hear a lot of survivors reporting um, problems with memory and concentration. But then over the course of 18 months to two years, we hear less and less. So there may be some changes and some positive improvements, but I think one, one start might be to, to work with a rehabilitative counselor to try to find out where you're at. Excellent. Um, and, you know, a lot of people also find that um, uh, working, joining a support group or talking with a counselor about their concerns in terms of identifying them and working out uh, compensatory tip, tips to co compensate for any memory and thinking change, that those can be incredibly helpful as well in terms of uh, managing. Um, Dr. Fleischman, can you comment on that as well, some of the compensatory activities that people engage in as a way to cope with um, these uh, memory and thinking changes? Sure. Um, we've actually done whole conference calls on the teleconferences yeah. on this. Um, things as, and it sounds simplistic, but everybody tells us it really works. Um, first, acknowledging that this is a problem. Second of all, uh, putting post-it notes on things, um, color coding things at home. Uh, when you get home, put your bag and your attache case and your wallet and your keys in the same place all the time as soon as you walk in the door so it's there when you go and you don't have to search for it. Um, if you're parking in a parking lot, write down what um, area you're in. We, we all go to the large amusement parks. I know at Disney World, every every area is named after a character, and you're in Pluto 6 or Snow White 8. Um, we can do the same thing in, in our daily lives in a much less commercial way. Um, letting people in your life know that uh, this is a problem, not leaving on time to go to things, but being a little early. Some people say that if they have to go from point A to point B, they will look on a map um, and they will figure out an alternate route in advance before they go in case there's traffic. So if they have to get off the highway or freeway and um, go an alternate way, they have it all planned out already. Um, things like that tend to be really, really helpful for mild cognitive disorders. Dr. Alfano, would you like to comment just from the NCI that I know there are materials at the National Cancer Institute. Any other thoughts that you might want to offer here? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Carolyn. So our Facing Forward series that um, was included with the materials that you all received with your registration has some information in it about workplace transitions that might be helpful for you. And also to add to what we've just been talking about, you know, a lot of survivors tell us that um, at the beginning when they're trying to figure out, you know, what, what is it, what is this chemo brain doing to me? What, what is it that I'm feeling? Keeping a journal of the kinds of things that you're having trouble with can be helpful to, to identifying what the problems are. You know, is it word finding? Is it remembering names? Is it remembering where you put your keys? Uh, and then looking at that journal later will help you or you and a counselor perhaps uh, identify what compensatory strategies that you need. Excellent. And uh, we should also just really want the takeaway point here is that there are compensatory strategies that can be worked out and tips that can be very useful and often um, sometimes working with someone and I would also encourage you to try to work with many of our partner organizations that are on this call today. All of us have uh, staff who can assist you with these kinds of tips and materials um, that could really make, make a difference for you and, and help with this. 
Well, I want to say this has been an extraordinary call today. I want to thank all of our terrific speakers. They've just been outstanding. And I want to thank all of you who have queued up and asked such really great questions. You know, your questions really enhanced our call today. I do want to remind all of and of course all of you who have been listening as well, we want to thank you for being on the call as well. And um, I do want to remind you that this is a one-hour program and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of a one-hour program. And so, therefore, this is why we have this collaborative effort. And we do want you to know that you can now contact any one of our organizations and um, for uh, any questions that you may have. And please feel free also to call the staff at Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE. Um, our staff are here to take your questions and concerns. We have all these support groups, things that could help you with some of the issues that came up today. Um, and... Um, Perhaps most importantly, as we conclude, I would not want anyone to feel that they're alone in coping with all these issues. I want you to now know that you're part of a community of support. Now, there is a part four to our series on July 13th, and it's called Survivors 2, Communicating with and among family, friends, and loved ones. And that program really is planned for family, friends, and loved ones, but all all of you can participate as well. It's, it's open to everyone. And that will be our concluding series in this uh, four-part, in our, in our four-part series. So stay tuned. We hope you'll join us for July 13th. Many of you have already signed up for that. And also just, if you can remember to fill out the evaluation forms, send them back to us. We've also provided a, a postage, a, a, reply, a postage free envelope that you can then, of course, send back if you want to by mail as well. So I want to thank you all. I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all for your participation. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may disconnect and have a wonderful day.